Cahen is sponsored in part by Soulcraft Brewing, Salida's hometown brewery, offering a large selection of traditional and seasonal craft beers. Their spacious patio features cozy fire pit tables for outdoor warmth on chilly days. Fresh food is served daily at the Soul Shack food truck, featuring snacks like wings and pretzels, and full meals like sandwiches, burgers, and a delicious brunch on Sunday. Soulcraft is open daily for happy hour, lunch, and dinner. Cahen is supported in part by Little Red Hen Bakery, located at 302 G Street in downtown Salida. Little Red Hen specializes in hometown fresh-baked bread, bagels, and treats, all made with organic and local ingredients. A full menu, including the wood-fired oven schedule and daily specials, can be found on their Facebook page at Little Red Hen Salida. Cahen and Little Red Hen – just two hometown chickens working to keep Salida, Salida. Welcome, friends, to another edition of On the Rails with me, your host, Forrest Whitman. We want to welcome you to the old caboose. Uh, take time to just get comfortable. If you, this is the K-H-E-N, K-H-E-N caboose, so if you want to climb up in the angel's seat, look out, watch the, watch the landscape as we roll along, you can. You can put your feet up on the conductor's desk, that's okay. I'm that kind of conductor. Uh, and <laughs> just we, what we like to do with this show is get people kind of relaxed and, and thinking about train travel and um, thinking about railroad history. And when it comes to railroad history, we have Robert Shoppy. Robert Shoppy. He is, I think, the savior of the Denver South Park, <laughs> the Denver South Park Railroad Historical Society. They've done so much. They have restored uh, two buildings, restored a lot of track, restored some uh, uh, a wonderful old uh, steam engine. And um, I have just been to their... Boreas Pass Railroad Day, which was wonderful. I went with an 84-year-old woman, and uh, she participated in every way. And enough, enough, enough. Back, back to you, Robert. Um, say a little bit more about your group and how long you've been president of it and some things like that, if, if you don't mind. No, it's the Denver South Park and Pacific Historical Society. It was founded in 1999 by Cliff Mistel. Uh, I've been president for 10 years now, and uh, our society is dedicated to preserving the legacy of the South Park Railroad. It was originally the Denver South Park and Pacific Railroad from 1873 to 1889, and it was reorganized uh, under the name of Denver, Leadville, and Gunnison, and reorganized one more time in December of 1898 as the Colorado and Southern Railroad. Our big project right now is the Como project. Uh, it started out with trying to save the depot. In fact, all we wanted to do was keep it from falling down and that's become the punchline now. All we wanted to do was keep it from falling down and <laughs> look where we're at now. It took seven well, look where years you're to completely at now. restore it. The first time that I saw that uh, depot, I said to myself, <laughs> give that one more good windy sort of snowy season and It'll be nothing but a pile of timber, timber there. And I guess it wasn't that bad, but it, it was, wouldn't you say it was pretty near the end for it? 
it was that bad. We estimated one or two winners from it falling down completely. The front face, the west side, the track side had fall, uh, sunk into the ground a good two feet and the building was leaning at 20 degrees. It wasn't far from completely falling down and we would have lost it forever. So we got it forever. in the nick of time and, and today it's fully restored. It's just beautiful, just beautiful. It is, it is in downtown Como. Now for our listeners who may not know where Como is, why, as you go along uh, the state highway there, uh, headed up toward Tennessee Pass. Well, that's not quite, how would you describe where, where the Como Road is there? Well, I would say it's located near the middle of the state and from the downtown of Denver, I would say it's about 80 miles west, southwest. It's not far from Breckenridge and it's about 10 miles on the Denver side of Fairplay on Highway 285. There you go. There you go. That's, that's a, a better description than, than what I would give. And uh, of course, talk about railroad history. My God, the, the South Park Line was, was there when it all happened. It was there when, when the, the big three railroads here in Colorado were all competing. The Denver and Rio Grande competing to get to Leadville and its riches. Uh, the Midland Railroad coming in, also uh, trying to get uh, get some of the trade um, out of Leadville. And, of course, the uh, uh, Denver, South Park, and Pacific uh, coming through. And um, we, that's just an interesting, interesting chapter in, in our railroad history. Well, what first intrigued you about that, Robert, that, that history? Well, for me personally, I grew up just outside of Philadelphia, near the Reading and Pennsylvania Railroads. I was always interested in trains. I think every little boy is interested in trains. Most grow out of it. Some never do like me. And uh, I was in the Navy for a career and I did a tour briefly at uh, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. And uh, a colonel there in the Air Force uh, heard I was interested in trains and he invited me to join his model railroad club called Pike Masters. It still exists today. And uh, I did join them. This was in the 1990s. And they had a large room with HO uh, standard gauge layout. But they also had a room with a narrow gauge layout. And that intrigued me. And I, I started buying books and reading about Colorado's narrow gauge history. And the rest is history. Yes, indeed. Well, for our listeners, do you want to say a little bit more about uh, just in general, the history of the, of the South Park? Well, it was incorporated in, in uh, 1873. Uh, Ex-Governor John Evans, territorial governor, was heavily involved in forming it. And uh, it was originally the Denver South Park and Pacific. In those days, I think many, many railroads added and Pacific to their names that helped sell stocks. Uh, but they only got as far as Gunnison, Colorado. Anyway, uh, they went up the Platte River. And originally, they went to Morrison in 1873 from Denver, so not very far. And then there was an economic downturn in 73 that put a freeze on expansion and construction for several years. And then in 1877, they started uh, building again and uh, went through what is today Waterton up the Platte River and over Kenosha Pass in the spring of 1879 and got to Como, Colorado in June of 1879, on their way across South Park, over Trout Creek Pass, down to Buena Vista, down to Nathrop, and up Chalk Creek Canyon, over the Continental Divided Alpine Tunnel, and down to Gunnison. It took a few more years to do that. Um, 
Originally, Como was just a stop along the way, but just two years later, in 1881, it became a major division point as they started building what they called the High Line, north out of Como, over Boreas Pass, down to Breckenridge, arriving there in 1882, and continuing on uh, down through Dillon and over to Frisco and up the 10 Mile Canyon over Fremont Pass, where the Climax Mine is today, and eventually down to Leadville, arriving there in 1884. So Como became the major division point. If you think of the railroad as kind of a Y, the bottom of the Y was Denver to Como, the left fork of the Y went to Gunnison and the right fork went to Leadville. And that's as far as they got. They got slightly past Gunnison. Uh, they went north up to the coal mines at Baldwin, just north of Gunnison. Uh, that's basically the history and the layout of the Denver South Park and Pacific. Wonderful little railroad, very tough, very tough competition because Certainly, um, well, the Midland, when it came through uh, to compete, why it was standard gauge. So, you know, four foot and a half, uh, roughly, gauge. So they, they, could, they could haul more weight on the car than, than the South Park could. Yeah, uh, narrow gauge was more conducive to rapid building, and it was rapid. It was a race to get to Leadville and Cripple Creek <laughs> and all the other gold and silver camps. Uh, but eventually, of course, standard gauge, four feet, eight and a half inches, won out. But it was more expensive to build, slower to build, but it did have better capacity. And it became the winner in, in the event of uh, being standard gauge, which was all over the country. And if you wanted to ship something, say, from Como, Colorado to Boston, it had to go down to Denver on the narrow gauge and be transferred by hand, a lot of labor involved to a standard gauge car so it could continue on to points east. And eventually that, that hurt the narrow gauge railroads. But initially in the 1870s and 1880s, it was an advantage to build narrow gauge. They were more conducive to steeper grades, sharper turns around mountains. And uh, if you were in a race to get to Leadville, building with narrow gauge at that time was a big advantage. Oh, it certainly was. And it certainly was a real race. The more I read about the history of that period, the more I'm impressed that the, well, the big names in Colorado, Governor Evans, who of course, extremely controversial figure for a lot of reasons, but uh, certainly uh, Governor Evans put uh, heart and soul into this, this little railroad. He really, he really thought it was, it was the future, really the future of Colorado. Uh, and yet the, uh, the, the other two competitors were also certainly involved in it. Uh, very much, uh, you know, General Palmer with his Denver and Rio Grande Western. Why, uh, he that was Palmer's, uh, you might say, Denouement in one sense, but nevertheless. And then, of course, the uh, the Midland with its, its big investors. So just very interesting times. And the other thing, as I read it, and I could, it could be wrong, but, but that the coal was was needed at Como because it was hard to carry a lot of coal long distances so that, that the coal mines at Como were apparently an inducement to, to build there. And I have you followed those coal mines? I've often wondered how, were they big mines? Little, wonder what they were. Big and little, there were two mines. And that's one of the reasons they could have gone across South Park many different ways, but they went through Como because there was a small coal mine uh, just, I would say, northwest. Today, it's at the entrance to Camp Como, just outside of town. 
that particular mine didn't prove very fruitful or very big. But in the same year of arrival, 1879, about two miles due south, uh, they found a very large coal deposit and mined it extensively for many years. Uh, that became the town of King and the railroad built a line to it from Como. And a lot of their coal came out of there. There were two big coal mines along the Denver South Park Pacific, as I mentioned earlier. The other one was in Baldwin, just north of Gunnison. Uh, but that mine produced a lot of coal until about 1893. And unfortunately, it was a very gaseous mine and there was an explosion that killed, I believe it was 23 miners. And they did mine some coal out of there after that, but uh, the operation was reduced greatly and not much coal came out of there. What kind of, what, what qual was it? Was it quality coal? What sort of coal? I wonder where, where they're getting out of there. Uh, it was very large diggings. It was over a mile long and it went down at about a 45 degree angle. They went down very, very deep and had a lot of stopes coming left and right off their initial tunnels down into the ground. Uh, I don't know the chemistry, if it was bituminous or anthracite or even something else, but uh, apparently it worked very, very well in the engines. And of course, they sold it locally to people for heating their homes or whatever they needed coal for. But it was, apparently it was a good quality coal. And coal was king during that. Hard for us to imagine now that we're moving away from coal for right. environmental reasons, partly. It, but coal was was really the, that was the fuel, that that was the modern way to move things. And, uh, yes. Yeah. Huh. Well, okay. So we've got the South Park that far. Now, when did the, when did the idea come in for the Alpine Tunnel? That must have been um, later when they realized they really needed to get to Gunnison. And that was, well, do you suppose that was their thinking? or We, we don't know, but what, what's your hunch on all that? Well, they wanted to get to Gunnison on their way, supposedly, to the Pacific. And they had laid, uh, well, they did surveys of uh, beyond Gunnison, north out of there. They did lay some track up to Baldwin, and they surveyed and started building a large rock wall. They were on their way uh, to what became Floresta coal mine that they did not ever get to, and the DNRG eventually did out of Crested Butte. Uh, but just north of Gunnison and Baldwin is as far as they got. As far as the Alpine Tunnel, uh, that was also known as Altman Pass, A-L-T-M-A-N. And uh, they knew they had to go underneath the Continental Divide there. And the tunnel proved to be more of a, a challenge than they thought because it, it wasn't, it was very little of it was solid rock. That was easy to get through, relatively speaking. But the rest of it was just loose scree, so to speak. And they had a hard time getting through. And it took them quite a while to complete that tunnel and, and get trains on a regular schedule down to Baldwin on the other side, or excuse me, uh, Gunnison. Yeah, in the Salida Library, there's a librarian who has spent a lot of her well, life, I don't know, but a long time uh, looking at that tunnel and reading all the novels. There are half a dozen novels that mention that tunnel and go into it. And... Uh, in fact, one of the one of those novels I, I got a kick out of. The, it's from the point of view of a young kid who hires out to work on the tunnel, and the first night he comes in the mess hall, and uh, you know, tries to pick up his plate and realizes that the plates are are nailed to the trestle tables, and uh, when people are done eating, they just go through with a big um, 
milk jug or whatever and slosh them out. And <laughs> apparently that was true. That's what, what they did. So kind of kind of those novels really, really talk about the difficulty that the Alpine Tunnel had and and how many wrecks they had. That, I, I, that's just amazing. I was how many how many of those do you think were enhanced for novels or do you think they really had that many wrecks or there's no official count in any of the records that I've ever seen of how many wrecks there were on the early narrow gauge but they were fairly common certainly by today's safety standards it would have been a disaster but wrecks were fairly common there's lots and lots of photos of wrecks some of them are precisely dated others are not but taking a, a primitive train downgrade, and they were 4% grades, which is very steep. Today's standard gauge railroads aren't anywhere near that steep. They're usually around one, one and a half percent. Three percent would be extreme, and the downhill or uphill for these railroads was commonly 4%. So on icy tracks or even wet tracks, it was not uncommon for an engine to start running away and they couldn't control it, especially with the primitive brake systems they had. So wrecks, unfortunately, were fairly common. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, oh, well, and I've got a, a list here of reader questions, two or three of these coming out of uh, Como and out of uh, uh, the wonderful event that you just, just had there, uh, the Boreas Pass Railroad Days. And uh, let, let me just run a couple of these. Just well, number sure. one, how... How is grade measured anyway? Now, that is kind of a, a good question. I, I, this, these are reader questions, of course, or listener questions. And uh, I, that's pretty standard, isn't it? Or uh, Grade is pretty straightforward. Curvature gets a lot more complicated. But, but grade is, when we say 4% over a 100-foot section, that's a 4-foot drop or, or increase. Um, so it's, that's pretty simple. And but when 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 you when it's okay, well on to the next part of that, which is when you say it's a certain percent curvature. Now is that like plane geography used to be, or how do they figure the cur curvature? What I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that because I don't oh, understand it. <laughs> I, uh, I'm at a loss to understand it. it. The way it's geometry, which I was not good at. Uh, I wasn't either, huh? Yeah. Oh, but the well. surveyors could explain it to you. I can't. But um, it's certainly the case that narrow gauge could have pretty pretty tight curves. And and uh, my kids were here from Thailand just recently, and so we rode the Kumbas and Toltec. And uh, boy, there's some there's mule shoe. Some of those. Some of those curves are really tight, you know. They are. And, and yet, uh, because it's narrow gauge, they were able to, to go around those curves. Yeah. Huh. A part of it is with a shorter wheelbase of a smaller engine, it can go around a, a tighter curve without the flanges of the wheels climbing up over the rails. Which they still do a little bit because you hear that squeal. Yes. And uh, the squeal well, tells even, you that's about as tight as they could make that curve for that particular engine or car. Wow. Yeah. We used to, oh, I, I worked for four railroads back in the day. 
way back in the day. But boy, we'd be sitting back in that old caboose, keeping braced. That's the other thing. You have to stay braced, my God. When that slack comes rolling out, um, you'd be on the ground otherwise, yeah. But but you, when you heard that squeal, you knew that the curve you were going around was just about max for the good old Burlington Railroad, uh, which was a good railroad. And thank thank you to them. They they still send me indirectly some some money for us ancient ancient retiree type people, and um, uh, they they I think they I think they built. As you say, uh, for speed, I think a lot of those lines, they just, I think they just wanted to get there. I, I don't know. That's just second guessing them what they were doing. But uh, it was a race to get to these locations because business was booming in the 1880s. There were gold and silver strikes all over the place, and some of them didn't turn out to be very big. But uh, the railroads were just in a hurry to be first there and capitalize on the business, not only the business, but the, the better route to get there. And oftentimes the second or even third railroad that came along uh, had, had to try a lot harder and, and build more expensive line because of the right of way. The pre premier right of way was already taken by the first railroad. Yeah. Which in a way the Rio Grande had. I mean, the Rio Grande was pretty much water level. Um, well, all the way up to, uh, well, let's see. What's, where did they cut off uh, up by Leadville? Um, yeah, should remember that. But anyway, the, the last little bit was pretty steep. But other than that, I think it was pretty much followed the, followed the, uh, the river, you know. Whenever possible, they all did that, yes. Yeah. And, and see, that's what comes alive when people come to something as we just came to the Boreas Pass Railroad days, um, for, for which we thank you, thank you, thank you for that. The, but when I talk to people who uh, occasionally I'd say, well, you know, I do a little railroad show on, on the radio and uh, get a lot of listeners from far away on, on the podcast. And they immediately would say, Oh, that's interesting. We, they'd say, honest to God, one woman said, we didn't know they still had railroads. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's extreme, but the, the, the consciousness is not, is not out there very much. Or do you find that, or is it just me picking that up? Or? Well, every now and then we get an interesting question. Um, I'm happy that people are interested enough to ask questions, but sometimes... You hear some funny comments. I remember one lady at one of the Boris Pass Railroad days asked us, we're talking about communication and how primitive it was, telegraph wire or visual signals. And she seriously said, why didn't they use their cell phones? Yeah. Yeah. So, there you that's go. Okay. We're there to, to help educate and, and tell people the history of the railroad and the effect it had on the development of Colorado. And I'm, I'm just glad they're there and asking questions. And you do a wonderful job. And we, uh, speaking of engineers, we have an engineer for this show. He's up there in the engine. He's pulling our caboose along here at KHEN 106.9 on your FM dial. And he is giving us a signal. And the signal is to say that, that we only have about four or five more minutes 
and we've got a long list of questions, but we'll come back. We'll, we'll have a break. Okay. Uh, but before, but now he's got only one finger up. Well, my goodness. That, Thank you. that means. <laughs> Thank you, Forrest. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is Rick White, head engineer of On the Rails. Um, I had a couple questions. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the standard of rail has become a four foot. That's still the standard? Four feet, eight and one half inches. And you may wonder where that half inch came from. And from what I read in various publications, it goes all the way back to the distance between the wheels on a Roman chariot. Wow. Four feet, eight and one half inches for the chariot run. Boy. And then the other question I had, Robert, was, um, let's see, I used to spend a, some time in Mueller State Park, kind of up in your neighborhood off of Highway 24. Um, and there's some grades that go through there. And are those grades, there's no longer track on them, but are those grades of the, uh, the railroad that we're talking about this morning? Yes, uh, that would be the Colorado Midland Standard Gauge. I see. Um, it pretty much follows 24 all the way from Colorado Springs up through South Park and and over uh, Trout Creek Pass and down to Buena Vista. Yeah, I see. Thank you. They uh, also had to interchange a lot in uh, uh, Buena Vista. And my understanding is that, uh, that sometimes that interchange would take a very long time because uh, I guess they did do that pretty much by hand, then what? Then they'd have to rent trackage, I suppose, from the Rio Grande beyond that, or did they did they lay, lay rail? Uh, that's a the good question. The interchange between the South Park line and the Colorado Midland actually took place on Trout Creek Pass. Um, as the railroads descended down Trout Creek Pass towards Buena Vista, the, the Midland stayed way up high on the side of the mountain. Uh, so there was no direct interchange because uh, to get from the Midland down to Buena Vista, they had a, a horse-drawn cart with the Midland sign on it, but it went up and down a, a steep road to get to the, uh, the the station for the Colorado Midland. Again, it was way up on the hillside, but down in the valley in Buena Vista level were both narrow gauge railroads of the South Park and the Denver Rio Grande. Now in the 1890s, the Denver Rio Grande standard gauge that line, that also known as the Tennessee Pass line. Much fought over these days before the Surface Transportation Board. As, as we know, we had a gentleman on this show talking about that, that battle, and that's really interesting. But in a way, in a way, your line already had a handle on that, uh, you know, because uh, it, it must have been a lot faster once they got out over Tennessee Pass to get down to Denver than what, say, the, well, certainly than the uh, Rio Grande, uh, because they had to go all the way around to what, Canyon City, through um, that whole big loop to get back to Denver. So the, their trackage must have been considerably uh, less than the, than, the, than the Rio Grande. I the think. most direct route from Denver to Leadville was actually the South Park line. Uh, the Denver and Rio Grande went down along the Front Range all the way to Pueblo, then through Canyon City, up through the Royal Gorge, and up the uh, Arkansas River Valley. And the Colorado Midland uh, went from Colorado Springs 
all the way up over Ute Pass and across South Park. And the Midland was pretty fast. But if you wanted to go from Denver to Leadville, the Denver South Park and Pacific was the most direct route. Boy, so many questions asked about that. And plus, we uh, well, let's take a break. Time for a break here. And uh, that'll give us time to refresh our tea. And uh, we are so excited today uh, to have, you know, to have a distinguished guest on, uh, on the rails here in the Cahan Caboose. Uh, Robert is, is the uh, president of the Denver South Park Historical Society. You know what we always say at the break? We give a great big highball. <laughs> One, two, three, highball. <laughs> Cahen is sponsored in part by Soulcraft Brewing, Salida's hometown brewery, offering a large selection of traditional and seasonal craft beers. Their spacious patio features cozy fire pit tables for outdoor warmth on chilly days. Fresh food is served daily at the Soul Shack food truck, featuring snacks like wings and pretzels, and full meals like sandwiches, burgers, and a delicious brunch on Sunday. Soulcraft is open daily for happy hour, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> 